0: Amen to that, and good morning, Life Church. I'm so glad that you're with us today. I hope you have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your phone. We're going to be in John chapter 11, the Gospel of John chapter 11. And so I'd love it if you would go ahead and find that. Um, While you're turning there, um, I thought it would be helpful today just to spend a couple of minutes um, thinking about what our goal is this morning. Like, why are we here? Why are we doing this? And I say that because I talked to a lot of people this week, myself included, um, who were frankly just really frustrated by the way this season of COVID-19 and self-isolation was impacting the Easter traditions that a lot of us know and love. I mean, We're frustrated by the fact that you know, we can't do a lot of the things that make the season of Easter Easter to us. Now, perhaps you haven't been frustrated by that this week. Perhaps, in fact, already you have done your Easter egg hunt and you just made a point of hiding all of those eggs more than six feet apart so that your children could maintain appropriate social distance while they were looking for those eggs. And perhaps you're even sitting in your living room or your kitchen or wherever right now and you're all dressed up and decked out. You've got your Easter bonnet on and you look like you would look if you were gathered in this building with us on Sunday morning. And perhaps as soon as we're done, you're going to have a family meal that looks just like any other Easter family meal. Perhaps you're not feeling really all that disrupted this Easter season. But the truth is a lot of us are. I think I'll even say most of us are. You know, gathering with the people of God in a place like this on Easter Sunday, that's something that we've come to know and love and treasure. And we feel disrupted and distressed by the fact that we can't do those things that make Easter feel like Easter. And we can add on top of that, the already existing anxiety and stress we feel because of this season, where we feel the economic instability that's facing many of us, if not us. We feel the anxiety that's produced by self-isolation and this semi-quarantine that a lot of us are living with. We feel the loss of relationship in relational connection with other people. We feel isolated by that. And we can add to that the grief that many of us are walking with as we watch thousands, even tens of thousands of people in our very country die from this unseen microscopic killer. Right? All of that, it adds up to just a weight that is, for a lot of us, difficult to carry. Right? We, we feel burdened by those things today. And so that's why I think it's important for us to remember what our goal is. Our goal here, it's not to walk in any certain set Easter traditions, no matter how sweet or sincere those traditions might be. And our goal isn't to unwind all of that stress and all of that anxiety that a lot of us are feeling. Our goal is to set our minds and our hearts on the glory of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Savior, Our goal is simply to know him better, to know him more, to see his beauty, to understand his glory more fully. Our goal as we come into this space this morning, it's simply to have an encounter with our crucified, resurrected, ascended Lord, and to know more fully and more sweetly who he is. You see, because the surest way to take our eyes off of our stresses The surest way to take our eyes off of our disappointments is not to to think about the solutions to all of those stresses or the resolutions to all of those disappointments. The surest way to walk out of those dark spaces in our lives is to set our eyes on the beauty and the glory of the one who is light. Is to set our eyes on the beauty and glory of the one who never disappoints, who is certain, the one who never changes, who is the same yesterday and today and forever. Our goal today is to set our eyes on the beauty and glory of Jesus. And I just pray that that's what we see together in the word of God as we walk through John chapter 11 today. I hope you're there. That's the passage we're going to turn to. As we turn to that, let me pray for us just one more time to prepare our hearts for time in the word of God this morning. God, we ask today that you would minister to us through your word and that in particular today you would use your spirit to reveal more sweetly and fully to us the perfect beauty and glory of your son Jesus. We pray that in this space, as we gather around these words, that your spirit would bring to reality in our minds and our hearts just how precious and perfect our Savior is. I pray that you would stir our hearts in their affection for him, in their love for him. That we might respond to who he is in worship, not not merely in song, though certainly in song, Lord. I pray that we would respond to him today in the worship that is our lives. We need you to work that in us today, Holy Spirit. And so we pray, God, the Spirit, that you would be with us as we study these words from your word today. In Christ's name I pray, all of that, amen. So John chapter 11, it's a famous passage of the Gospel of John, it's also a long passage in the Gospel of John, and so I'm going to try to summarize the first little bit of it to set the stage for where this story in the life of Jesus is headed. John 11 begins with the news that a man named Lazarus is sick. Now, Lazarus has two sisters. Their names are Martha and Mary. We'll meet them in this story. And John tells us a couple of details about Lazarus and Mary and Martha. First of all, John wants us to know that this Mary is the same Mary who once broke an expensive bottle of perfume on Jesus' feet and wiped that perfume off with her hair. Just an act of pure and sweet devotion to the Lord. John also tells us in these opening verses simply that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And so we can conclude from the beginning of the story that these three people, they're among Jesus' closest friends on earth. They are sincere followers of our Lord and our Lord loved them very much. So when Mary and Martha learn that their brother, Lazarus is ill and they send news to Jesus that he's ill, We expect Jesus to do something about that, right? We expect him suddenly to respond to the fact that this beloved follower, this beloved friend, is sick. But very significantly, John tells us in verse four that Jesus didn't do that. Jesus' response to the news that Lazarus is ill is this. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified. and what that means is that this story at its very outset confronts us with an idea that honestly a lot of times we don't really like to think about we don't really like to think about an idea of a sickness that leads to the glory of God right we don't really like to think about the fact that the Lord might use something hard and heavy that he might use suffering even death in our lives to glorify himself But that's exactly how John introduces this story. I mean, this story is an example of a sickness that brings glory to God. Now, for a lot of us, the concept that we have of God, it doesn't really have room for that. It doesn't really have space for that. When we think about the love of God, we think that the love of God will always translate to things that feel warm and fuzzy in our lives. The love of God will always translate to things that are pleasant, to things that feel good, that seem good to us but what John 11 introduces us to is the fact that the love of God is actually far deeper and bigger than that. The love of God isn't something that doesn't have room for pain. The love of God is something that can use pain, that gives purpose to pain. The love of God is something that ensures that no matter what pain we experience, it's pain that will never be wasted because God is so big and so good and so glorious that he can use even sickness, to glorify himself, and to accomplish his good purpose in our lives. And so because that's true, Jesus learns that his beloved friend Lazarus is ill, and though we have seen Jesus in his life turn a few drops of food into food for 5,000 people, though we have seen Jesus heal blind men and walk on water and raise other people from the dead, Jesus waits two days where he is and he lets Lazarus die. Because he loves Lazarus and Mary and Martha. He lets Lazarus die. Then he decides this time to go and see his friends. And so he tells his disciples, we're going to Bethany where Mary and Martha are. Where Lazarus was while he was still alive. And Jesus' disciples, they're like, but Jesus, if we go to Bethany, don't the people there want to kill you? And Jesus says, they do. But then he adds this, this is John eleven fourteen. 14. He says, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And then Jesus and his disciples took the journey to Bethany, to where Mary and Martha are. Let's pick the story up now in verse 17. And here's where I'll read from our passage more fully. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead, I'm sorry, had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Now, as we read through the story, I want you to see that John has recorded these events in a very deliberate way to help us understand something about Jesus. John wants us to understand that Jesus, in his absolute perfection and intimate perfect love, is able to know and meet the very different needs that Mary and Martha, these two sisters of dead Lazarus, bring to him. And the reason we can see that that's what this story is really about is because Mary and Martha, when they come to Jesus and they come to him separately, Martha first, then Mary, when they come to Jesus in this story, they actually say the exact same thing to him. Each one of them, when they come to Jesus, they say to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's what Martha says in verse 21. And then you can look ahead, Mary will say the very same thing in verse 32. And that's a sign to us that John, who's writing the story down for us, he wants us to compare and contrast Jesus' interaction with these two women. And what he ultimately, ultimately wants us to see in that is that Jesus knows perfectly and is able to meet perfectly the needs that each of these women has. And so they come to him with those needs. They're different needs, but he meets each of them perfectly. Let me show you what I mean. We'll start with Martha, verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming in to the world. Now what does Martha need? What need is she bringing to Jesus that Jesus knows intimately and meets perfectly? Perfectly. Well, I think it's important to begin by acknowledging the fact that Mary and Martha, that really, they've just been through hell, right? I mean, they have just sat beside their brother Lazarus as he died. Now, in 2020, if you sit at the bedside of somebody who's dying, that's still like a devastating and agonizing experience, right? It is horrible to sit through and to watch somebody die, right? They start to wheeze and cough and they seem to become very deflated <laughs> and all human dignity goes out the door, it seems, as somebody is on the cusp of death. And so even in 2020, if you sit next to somebody while they are dying, that is a a trying and agonizing experience. I think it was even more trying and more agonizing in the time of Jesus, because obviously there, there was no medical care, really, so to speak, Right? There was no pain relief. There was no home hospice. There was no nursing who's nurse, nurses who specialized in you know, caring for people in the last moments of their life. And so any care that Lazarus has received in the last hours and days and weeks of his life, Mary and Martha have been there providing that care for him. Right? They've been sitting next to him, feeding him, giving him water to drink, helping him relieve himself. I mean, anything that needed to happen Mary and Martha were the ones to provide that care. And we can be sure that that was an agonizing experience for them. But there's another layer of this because Mary and Martha did all of that thinking that they had a silver bullet. They thought that they could hope in Jesus. See, remember, Jesus was their dear friend. Jesus loved them. They were devoted and close followers of him. They knew that he cared about and loved Lazarus deeply. And so when Mary and Martha sat beside their suffering, dying brother, and they sent word to Jesus that he whom you love is ill, they thought, surely the man we've seen walk on water. Surely the man we've seen bring other people back from death. Surely he will come and he will heal our brother. And then Jesus didn't do it. He waited where he was for two days. And I think if you add those things together, this experience for Martha has almost been more than she can bear. I think that you even hear in her tone of voice, in those words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I think you hear an accusation there. I think she's frustrated with Jesus. I think the subtext of her speech is, Jesus, where were you? You could have saved us from all of this grief, all of this suffering, all of this pain, yet you did nothing. Why didn't you come? I think that's what's behind Martha's words here. And so it's important then to think about how Jesus responds to Martha. Right? What, is, what does he say to her? Look at verse 23. Jesus said to her, "'Your brother will rise again.' And Martha said to him, "'I know that he will rise again "'in the resurrection on the last day.'" And what Martha says there, that's what every good Jew in Martha's day would have said. Most Jews believe that at the end of the age, there would be a resurrection of the dead to glory. And, And Martha, she's just spouting out the party line here, right? She's just saying, "'Jesus, I know that,' like through gritted teeth almost." She's professing that truth back to Jesus. But Jesus responds to her. He said, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He asks her. And what I want to point out to you is that what Jesus is claiming here In truth, it is stunning. It is staggering, right? Jesus does not say, you know, I can revive Lazarus. Jesus does not say, I can resuscitate Lazarus. Jesus does not say, I have special access to divine power and I can bring Lazarus back from the dead. He doesn't say any of that. He says, I am resurrection and life. I have power over resurrection and power over life because I am God who possesses power over those things. They are mine because I am divine, Jesus says. That's his claim. And then notice Martha's response. He asks her, do you believe this? And she says to him, and again, I still think her tone of voice here, she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. And I'll show you why I think it in a second, but I think she says even that through gritted teeth. What she says is, it's technically correct, but it's absolutely and completely incomplete. We'll see why in a few moments. But first, John switches our attention from Martha to Mary. And so we need to see now how Jesus responds to and meets Mary's needs. Verse 28, when she, Martha, had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And so she summons Mary to meet Jesus. Skip ahead with me to verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, that's exactly what Martha said. Lord, if you had been here, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Now, the question before us is what does Mary need? Martha came to Jesus with a need, and Jesus responded to her with truth, right, with the truth of the fact that he is resurrection and life. Mary comes to Jesus, and he responds to her not with truth, but with tears. Verse 33. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled at the sorrow that people were experiencing because of Lazarus' death. Verse 35, Jesus wept, John tells us. Jesus' reaction to Mary is not to point her to some truth about him, but rather it's to reveal the truth that he is perfect, infinite love. I mean, that's what Mary needed. She needed to know in this moment of grief and turmoil and sorrow, that there was a God who felt those same things perfectly, who didn't close his heart to those same things. It's really incredible to think about the fact that Jesus grieves so openly here, given the fact that Jesus surely knows what is about to happen. He surely knows that 10 minutes later, Lazarus is going to come out of that grave because he's going to summon him out of that grave. Jesus knows full well what he is about to do, yet he still grieves openly. He's still broken. He still mourns over the sorrow caused by Lazarus' death because not for one second does Jesus close his heart to his dear friend Mary. Not for one second is there any distance between Jesus and, And what Mary feels. Not for one second is Jesus removed from the pain and the sorrow and the grief in Mary's life. And that's because Jesus is perfect love. He loves Mary fully and perfectly. He mourns when she mourns. He grieves when she grieves. He is broken by the very same things that break her. And so even though he's sure that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He weeps over the very realities that cause Mary to weep. Now in my mind, this is one of the most incredible things about Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. Right? Though he is awesomely powerful, he is at the same time completely and perfectly tender and loving and compassionate. I mean, think about how impossible it seems to us for those same two ideas to fit together colossians chapter 1 paul says that jesus christ is before all things and in him All things hold together. Hebrews chapter 1 says that Jesus sustains everything in the cosmos by the word of his power. John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus was there in the beginning. In other words, before the very foundation of the cosmos, Jesus was there as the pre-existent, eternally existent son of God. Philippians 2 tells us that there will be a day when every knee bows before Jesus on heaven and on earth and under the earth when he has given the name that is above all names and all creatures in the universe will bow and worship. Before him. And so it makes complete sense that Jesus would be a God of perfect majesty and power and glory. Yet we see here that he's also a God who is so tender and so compassionate and so loving as to weep alongside his beloved sister who weeps. Now, there are a lot of religions in the world, friends, that have gods who are powerful gods. There are a lot of religions in the world who present to us gods that are great and mighty and there are even a few religions in the world that present to us gods who are tender and loving and kind but it's only Jesus Christ who is all of those things at the very same time it is only Jesus Christ who is great and glorious and majestic and at the same moment tender and loving and compassionate that's what he reveals to Mary here That's the truth that he presses into her through his tears. That's the truth that she needed to understand that she could only understand because of his tears. But we still haven't figured out exactly what Martha needs. And so turn back now because John, having put the camera on Mary for a moment, swivels back to put it on Martha again. Verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Now you can just consider this my Easter gift to you this morning, but I would encourage you to sometime after we're done, to pull out an old King James version of the Bible or to find one online and to look up verse 39 in the old King James version of the Bible. If you do that, you'll see the word stinketh, which doesn't add anything to what I'm saying this morning. I just thought it was awesome and wanted to share it with you. But what we do see here is why I'm convinced that Martha doesn't actually believe anything that she said in the earlier part of this passage. Right, Jesus, he comes to Lazarus' tomb, it's been sealed up, shut up. Lazarus' body has been in there for four days. He says, roll the stone away, and Martha's like, "Um, Jesus, are you sure you wanna do that? I mean, remember, stinketh, right? It's not gonna smell so good if you do that because there's a dead guy in there, but Jesus, he knows exactly where the disconnect is for Martha. He knows that while Martha professed earlier that he is resurrection and life, while she professed earlier that he is the son of God who has come into the world, Jesus knows that Martha, maybe she has an intellectual grasp of those things. Maybe she understands those things in her head, but those are not things that have moved to her heart. They are not realities that shape and control who she is and what she does, which is why she protests when Jesus wants to summon Lazarus from the grave. Another way to put that, I think in a very real way, Martha believes in Jesus very much like I believe in George Washington. I mean, I believe in George Washington, I do. I don't doubt the fact or deny the fact that he existed. I'm not so sure that the thing with the cherry tree is true, but I believe that he you know, crossed the Delaware River with his army and whooped up on some redcoats. I believe that he was the first president of our country. I believe all of those things. But friends, the fact that I believe those things, it doesn't change a thing about the decisions that I make today. It doesn't change a thing about the affections of my heart. Right? I believe that George Washington was real, but that does not move the needle. I don't worship George Washington. I don't love George Washington. My life, my life it's not ordered differently because of George Washington. And I think that's exactly the position that Martha is in Yeah, yeah, Jesus, your resurrection and life, I get it. Yeah, yeah, you're the son of God who's come into the world. But don't you dare open that tomb because it smells in there and there can't be anything done about that dead man in there. But then think about how lovingly and awesomely Jesus, knowing exactly where Martha's at, meets that need in her. Think about how lovingly and awesomely he moves this truth of resurrection life from her head to her heart. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So she took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Can you imagine just how real the reality of Jesus' resurrection power would have seemed to Martha In that moment. I mean she could see Lazarus with her eyes. She could put her hands on her brother Lazarus. I'm sure she could smell Lazarus. Because he probably did stinketh. right? I'm sure all of her senses were suddenly alive to the fact. That the power Jesus claims to have. Is real power. That he is resurrection and life. See just as Jesus gave Mary exactly what she needed he shows Martha what she needs to see and understand. Mary, she needed to know the truth of Jesus' love for her, but Martha needed to understand the truth of Jesus' power over life and death. She needed to understand that Jesus is resurrection and life. We need to understand both of those things. Now, today I want to spend just a few more minutes thinking with you about what we do with what we've seen of Jesus here in John chapter 11. And so I'm going to tease out three things for us. And the way that I'm thinking about this, we're going to talk first about what we must not do in light of who Jesus presents himself to be here. I'm going to talk about what we should do in light of who we see Jesus to be. And then we'll talk about what we can do. And so let's start first with what we must not do in light of the Jesus who presents himself this way in John chapter 11. If I'm gonna sum it up with a word, what we must not do is moderation. We must not do anything even remotely moderate. See friends, when Jesus claims to be resurrection and life, he is making an open claim to be God. Right? It's only God who has resurrection power and power over life and death. So when Jesus says in John 11:25, 25, I am the resurrection and the life, he's making a very open claim to be deity. He's claiming to be divine. He's claiming to be God. And that claim, it forces us to decide something about him and moderation simply isn't an option. It's not one of the things that's really on the table for us in light of who Jesus claims to be. If Jesus never claimed to be God, then we could believe in Jesus the way that I believe in George Washington. Right, if he never claimed to be God, we could, you know, listen to his teaching and learn from his example, and we could go about our lives being shaped and influenced slightly by Jesus, and that's it. But because Jesus claimed to be divine, we're forced to deal with him in a different way, Either we can deny his claim and reject it altogether saying there's no way he's God or we can accept his claim. And if we accept his claim, if we believe truly that Jesus is the son of God, then we have to give him everything. Then we have to worship him with our lives. Then our entire lives have to be devoted to him rather than to ourselves. See, moderation isn't an option. Either we reject him or we embrace him. Either we say he's a fool or we say he is our divine king. There is no middle ground. And so you can't sit on the fence with Jesus. You can't be moderate in your response to Jesus, which is why the most critical question any one of us can ask and answer is the question that Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe this? Do you believe that he is resurrection and life? Either you reject that, or you embrace him as your everything today, church. I pray that you believe. That's what we must not do. Let's talk about what we should do in light of who Jesus reveals himself to be here. We should take a step forward, even just a small step forward. If Jesus is who he claims to be in this passage, then it should be the cry of our hearts And the desires of our lives to know him better and so church we should take one small step forward to know him better we should commit to knowing him more and more deeply we should realize that jesus is worthy of more of our devotion and so i ask you today what is one small step forward that you can take with jesus today and i ask you that whether This is the very first time you've ever really thought about the fact that Jesus is God or you've thought about that every day of your life for decades. What's one step forward that you can take with him? What is a deeper habit of personal devotion or communion with the Lord that you can walk in today? What is a deeper commitment to your local church that you can walk in today? What is a deeper commitment that you can walk in to love God more or to love others more in the name of our Savior? Because when we grasp who Jesus is, when our hearts behold his beauty and his glory, we recognize more and more that he's worthy of everything that we have and everything that we are. And so what step forward can you take with the one who is resurrection and life. Here's the third thing. What can we do? Well, friends, we can have hope. Because Jesus is resurrection and life, whatever we face today, whatever hardship, whatever trial, whatever blessing, because Jesus is resurrection and life, we can be sure that the future will be better than the present. We can be sure that the best is still to come for you and for me because Jesus is resurrection and life. We can have hope in that. And though I need to point out that Christian hope, it's different than the way we typically talk about hope, at least in our culture and with our language. When we talk about hope, usually we mean something like wishful thinking. We say things like, I hope I'm having pizza for lunch, or I hope that they quickly develop a cure for the coronavirus, right? We wish those things, and we talk about our wishes with the language of hope. But what we need to understand is that that is not how the Bible speaks about hope. When the Bible speaks about hope, that is something that is an assured reality. Christian hope, it's an assured hope. It is a certain hope that comes from the faith that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that he did do what the Bible says that he did, that he truly lived, that he truly died, and that he truly rose again. That's actually what's on the table in this particular passage because if you continue to read after we stopped in verse 44, you realize that very quickly, because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, all of his enemies started to conspire to kill him. Verse 53, So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. In other words, because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he went to the grave himself. And my question for you is, don't you think Jesus knew that would happen? Don't you think Jesus knew that raising Lazarus from the grave was going to be the last straw for his enemies, and that because he raised Lazarus from the grave, then they would conspire to kill him? And I say, of course Jesus knew that. Why did he do it then? Well, Jesus did it because he is a gracious son of God. And he knew that the only way to get Lazarus out of his grave was to go to his own grave. He knew the only only way to overcome death in Lazarus' life was to face death himself. And so Jesus went very willingly from the resurrection of Lazarus to his own cross and to his own grave and then to his own resurrection three days later. See, friends, Jesus knew that that's what would come, and he chose to do those very things. And that's why our hope is assured hope today. It's a certain hope today, because it rests completely on what Jesus did on the cross for us. It rests completely on the fact that Jesus was the perfect son of God. It rests completely on the fact that Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to God in human form. It rests completely on the fact that on the cross, Jesus died a substitutionary death in our place. It rests completely in the fact that on the cross, he paid the price that our sin demanded. He endured the penalty that our sin required. He assumed the punishment that our sin deserved. But it rests completely then on the fact that he rose from the grave Three days later, it rests completely on the fact that anyone who trusts in his saving work by faith and who repents of their sin can be accepted into the family of God in Christ as a son or daughter of God, as a brother or sister of Jesus. See, this saving work of Jesus that is the ground of our hope, it's a finished work. It's a complete work. It lacks absolutely nothing which means it doesn't rest on your effort or on mine it's not contingent on anything that we do or don't do that's why our hope is assured cuz so it's not a hope that's built on us it's a hope that's built on jesus see our hope isn't that we might live lives that are good enough that we'll someday earn god's favor Our hope isn't that we'll be religious enough that we can someday be reconciled to God. Our hope is in Christ alone, in his death and in his resurrection. It rests completely on his love and grace and mercy and power. And friends, those things are assured. So our hope is assured. Today, in April of 2020, that is the single most encouraging thing I have to say to you. I mean, that is the best piece of news that I can possibly give you. If you are in Christ, then you have an assured hope, a hope that lasts beyond the grave. Sickness and disease and death, they are real, they are terrible, but they will be defeated. Death will be defeated. Our assured hope is that one day, just as Christ has been raised to glory, we will be raised with him in victory over sin and death. That's why the Apostle Paul can say to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, I just love how he taunts death. He says, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory over those things through our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, do you believe this? Father, we pray that you would work in us, that you would cultivate in us faith in these very good and great promises from your word. We pray that you would captivate us by the beauty of your son Jesus so that we might see that our lives must be a glorious and worshipful response to who he is. And We pray, God, that you would help us to live life with conviction and assured hope that Jesus is who he says he is and that he has done what he promised he would do. May we recognize that it is not mere wishful thinking that we will one day overcome sin and death. It is certain because you have made it certain through the resurrection of your son. And may we rest peacefully and secure in the victory that he has won over Satan, sin, and death. I pray that in the name of Jesus today. Amen.